0: One, two, three, four. Jay McInerney is the author of 12 books, including Bright Precious Days, Bright Lights Big City, Ransom, Story of My Life, Brightness Falls, and The Good Life, which received the Grand Prix Literataire at the Duval Film Festival. His short story collection, How It Ended, was named one of the 10 Best Books of the Year by the New York Times. McInerney's work has appeared in New York, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review, The Guardian, and other publications. Winner of the James Beard MFK Fisher Award, McInerney's screen credits include the screenplay for Gia, starring Angelina Jolie, and Bright Lights, Big City, starring Michael J. Fox. McInerney was named a literary lion by the New York Public Library.
1: Most of my previous novels, there's come a point where I just go to the country and hide for five or six weeks. You know, sometimes it's the first draft, sometimes it's the second. Certainly not for three or four years, but there are periods when when I just feel like I just have to cut out the world and just listen to the voices in your own head. I regularly take periods of a month or two in the course of each of these novels to isolate myself world. I used to borrow country houses from friends. Now I have my own country house, so I hide here. <laughs> also, sometimes I used to go to Yada, a writer's retreat. Unfortunately, to get into Yada you have to be a sort of a, you, you already have to have some kind of accomplishment as a, an artist. And <laughs> when I was writing my first novel, I didn't have anything. No, I wrote my first novel. I don't know, I guess I wrote part of it in, I wrote part of it in the city and I wrote part of it when I was a graduate. When I wrote my first novel, I was I was at Syracuse uh, studying with uh, Tobias Wolfe and Raymond Carver. In the summer after my second year there, I, I, I wrote most of my last big city. Mm-hmm.
2: And when did you know you were a writer? When did you make that decision?
1: Well, it turns out I, I, I think I've you know, been writing ever since I was very young. When my father died, I, I came across some things that he had saved that I wrote when I was five and the first time I remember really getting excited about writing was, was when, when I, was, I was in the ninth grade, I was about 15, and, um, and I, I discovered the work of Dylan Thomas, a Welsh poet, and that really got me interested in language. And in fact, for quite a while, I wanted to be a poet. It was only when I got to college, when I started reading uh, Hemingway and James Joyce and like that, that I changed my focus to fiction.
2: Mm. But your writing also suffuses the, the poetic elements. I mean, I think of your first novel, but also there's a there's a great um, sensitivity. It's the the poetry, you can still hear it there. Uh, well, I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it, it's interesting because it's um, satirical and it has all those elements, but uh, I don't even know if it's fashionable to say, but it's, all, it's romantic. <laughs> uh,
1: well, yeah, it's true. I mean, I think there is a romantic... Different than
2: some of my peers. Yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult line to cross. I mean I'm thinking now of um, Russell and Corinne Calloway and you have this um, you know, this great affection for their mistakes and um, and at this this distance that you write from. Um
1: well, it's funny you should mention Russell and Corinne Calloway because I've just finished a new novel about them which is coming out in September. Oh, okay.
2: Wow. So how long were you, have you been working on that novel? And I mean, that's the third book you've written about them now.
1: Yes, yes, the third one. I, you know, I think this this one probably took me two and a half
2: or three years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to have to look. I'm going to have to go back and see when I started.
1: All together, you know, three. I probably started about three years ago. But in the meantime, I wrote another. In 2010, I I, I wrote another novel that I just. Um, it eventually decided not to publish, so there's sort of there's sort of a lost novel <laughs> there. Wow! But you know, maybe maybe now I'll go back to it and see if I can figure it out and fix it. But um, I think every once in a while, you know, every novel is a new challenge, and mm. I just don't think it's not like it's not like being a lawyer where you just master basic
3: skills and that's that. I mean, I, th- I think there has to be a um, there has to be an element of passion and magic that
1: eventually comes. Along with you know the craft and the structure and uh, um, the things that you can learn by rote, and in the case of this novel that I wrote in 2010, I just I just ultimately felt that it, it never really it took off. It didn't catch fire. So so that was I guess I worked on it in 2010, 2011, and then I and then I um. Uh, and then I knew I wanted to go back and write about Russell and Korean, mm-hmm. which I started in 2012. The book will come out in um, in, in in the U.S. and England. Then it will come
3: out in uh, September.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because some, it's, they're obviously very close to you, and sometimes we want to avoid the thing that comes. I don't want to say easiest, but that <laughs> that comes naturally. But I mean the 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 um, writing the other book, but you're drawn back to these characters. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah, I I realized I realized I was good. You know, when I, when I was writing the second one, I realized that there would probably be a third. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course, when I was writing the first one, many 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 years ago, I it didn't I don't think it occurred to me that I would revisit these characters. But, mm-hmm. but they they really stayed with me, and uh, you know, I'm a great fan of John Updike's mm-hmm. Rabbit novels. You know. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see people develop over time. In the case of Russell and Corrine now, it'll be, you know, I will have followed them for 25 years at this point. Uh, and, you know, 25 years of their lives. When I first started writing about them, they were they were in their 20s. <laughs> this book, yeah. they both turned 50.
2: So, you th- would this be the last one, or are you going to keep it open? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. Three is a good number. But I think so. <laughs> And I could call it a trilogy, but I,
1: I just don't know. I, I mean of course now I'm really eager to do other things because yeah. you know, I've been living with them for the last two and a half years, so now, now I want to get away and try try something really different and um, and I wanna write some short stories and uh, and I wanna write a also I I wanted my I want my next novel to be something short and voice driven. I mean this is a very long, really complex novel written in the third person and um, I'm kind of eager to do a something that's more
2: um, You're pretty more good at quotes. second person <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, yeah.
1: well if I was thinking about that this morning but um, you know if, if Rattlesby City had been a little less successful I feel like it would be easier for me to to write in the second person again uh, but I, I just feel like uh, I don't know the moment that I write in the second person, I'm afraid that everyone will accuse me of imitating myself.
3: Or,
1: <laughs> which is horrible. I'm it's yourself.
3: right
2: <laughs> Yeah, um, I know, but that's difficult, isn't it? They, but and it's it's a double edge because they do want you to repeat yourself when you're successful. <laughs> might then accuse I, you. Yeah, I,
1: well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I do have a sort of a short novel. Was trying to decide this morning whether it would suit, you know, whether it would lend
3: itself to the second person or not. And mm-hmm. I guess the only way to discover that is
1: to um, is to try because um, I, I, you know, I, I think that there's only so much you can think
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, think uh, out in advance when you're talking about fiction. You really have to realize your your ideas through. It. Know, through, through language and until you until you start writing you won't really know
2: yeah well I'm I'm very interested in these questions about POV um maybe if the POV was an, a female character it would be less joined to that early well, first I loved, person I, yeah
3: well
1: I love that I mean I did, if you read my
2: third novel I my life which was mm. from entirely mm. from a woman's point of view although it was first person not but that's but that's the kind of book that I, I feel like writing now. Something that's just very voice driven, whether it's yeah. first or second person.
0: Yeah,
2: you it's know,
1: either first or or second. It's uh, something something that something that is carried by the power of the voice, and that was certainly true of Bright Lights, Big like City, and it was true of Story of My Life. And in some ways, those books felt like they wrote themselves. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, obviously I worked hard, but. Felt like I was often just carried along by the, by the sort of the, the rhythm and uh, the power of, of, of these voices that I had that I had gotten hold of.
2: <laughs> yes, no, I'm very attracted to. Uh, I think people the the way um, television is changing and the way everything is changing. I think people are very attracted to that voice driven narrative uh, because yeah. they they receive the rest in these other mediums. Um, the great distance, but yeah, I mean. T-
3: true, yeah, that's true. Yeah.
2: Um, then there's an interest. Um, you would like to talk a bit about "Destroy My Life," and I know it was based on real Hunter. Um, well, it wasn't. I mean. Oh, excuse me. I don't know. <laughs> but <then> I mean, <laughs> I mean vaguely. I mean, I, it, you know, it's, it's fiction. I just, yeah. you know, uh, I I dated this girl, Yel you know, Hunter, who, and and I was sort of fascinated by her
3: and her friends and inspired the story, It wasn't, it wasn't, it, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was a novel. I yeah, just, of course. You know, took, took the, you know, took these, you know, partly
1: it was the way they spoke that intrigued me, and so I sort of took these, these voices and kind of ran with it.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's not a bad thing to be based on, not based, but to be inspired by life, otherwise you're just...
1: Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, well, it's true, and which, which, which most, which most fictions are. Mm-hmm. It's just you know, it's just a little weird the way that that book is getting a little bit tied into this big scandal Mm involving John Edwards, you know, and really, uh, it uh, (laughs) it certainly has nothing to do with that. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. I still have a great soft spot for that book, and um, and it's you know, I mean, strangely enough, my you know, people like my friend Julian Barnes,
2: who's oh yeah,
1: you wouldn't. Necessarily consider that to be um, his cup of tea, but that's—I think—that's his favorite of all my
3: books,
2: strangely yeah. enough. <laughs> no, I can see um, that.
1: It's, um, but you know, I like that it's very—it uh, has a certain completeness. And I don't want to say perfection, but but,
3: mm. but I mean it. You know, it's it's very—it's uh, it, sort of completely realized and self-contained in a way that. More,
1: the longer or sprawling third-person novels almost can't be
2: mm-hmm. yeah it's a great focus
1: yeah yeah I mean just yeah just having that very limited point of view is mm-hmm. you know sometimes you know limitations uh, can be can be freeing it's a little bit like rhyme and meter and poetry you know mm-hmm. if you're uh, and in the case of story of my life it, it was a a limited point of view, because the, 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 girl that I was writing about, I mean, she was really a girl, she was just turning 21, and, um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and she didn't, you know, she, she had a limited point of view, she wasn't, mm-hmm. she wasn't someone who had knowledge, you know, who had mastered all the knowledge of the world, and, and had, you know, a lifetime of experience behind her, she was young, and, and um, uh, and not hyper educated and 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 so uh, working within those limitations was kind
3: of um uh, uh it, you know it, it allowed me to and, and
1: it made certain you know certain choices were made for me in advance it, it certainly would have been harder for me too to, you know write about you know uh, a a a woman who was a 60 year old nuclear scientist um uh, <laughs> who had cancer say harder <laughs> yeah. you know, to find um, the poetry but, um, but, um, um but you know uh, there were certain limitations to that character which uh, which you know defined the form and shape um you yeah, i'd love to i'd love to find i'd love to find a voice like that again
2: where, mm-hmm. Yeah, no I'm very interested in this this kind of this kind of writing that has its limitations but as you're saying has a poetic um um momentum. Uh, I'm thinking of it's I don't know it's it's not the same but like Roberto Bolaño or some, you know there's these street elements and you use those limitations to create something um, beautiful. So um and then and then I, I wonder like the way New York has changed so much you pro- you meet lots of interesting people. Can you meet the real hunters, or it's harder work? I think that New York still draws ambitious young people, ambitious people in general, and um, it's still—I mean, to me, it's still an amazing
3: kind of hunting ground for a novelist, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and a great, uh, and a great backdrop for uh, telling stories. But um, it, it's changed a great
1: deal since I since I went there. Oh, it's the fall of 1979 and, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's less diverse than it was because uh, you know it's become gentrified it's become uh, much more prosperous and uh, some of the marginal characters that that have always been a part of New York uh, city history are are, are, are being
2: Well, so how you talk about as a hunting ground? So how do you do your hunting?
1: Subject matter that was being explored, even by journalists, you know, it was terra incognita, and the culture moved more slowly than there wasn't social media, and there, there there weren't really even any downtown publications when I first uh, arrived. So that you know, I could, in, this, in the t- in the space of time that took me to conceive and write a novel, I could still deliver cultural news. Uh, that is, a lot of people were surprised by. The sort of sociological content of Bright Lights Big City, you know, the, uh, the you know the downtown nightclub drugs stuff, which which seemed fresh and new to them, although you know really it had been around for a long time before I wrote about it. And um, um, you know, in this in this day and age, I, I I don't think a novelist really can do that. You know, I mean. <laughs> it's much harder for novels to deliver cultural news at this point because because the uh the culture moves so quickly and because um you know something's something's on twitter today and paper magazine tomorrow and in Time magazine the next week and then it's over <laughs> um there was much you know there was a much more uh leisurely of communication, and so i mean so i think that's another way in which um you know writing about uh, writing about new york has changed because uh, i think it's a lot harder to you know it's pretty hard to find unexplored areas of the city and by areas i mean you know subcultures uh, mm-hmm. as well as neighborhoods you know yeah
2: it's so What's interesting? Yeah, it's always hard to find that that new thing that hasn't been covered. But what I found interesting about your writing is you also write about money and success and class. Yeah. And um, it, I guess literary authors aren't supposed to do that, or but. It's true. It seems <laughs> yeah I I but you are very literary so they they don't want to tackle it. It's all about earnestness and suffering. Um, yeah,
1: it's it's funny how, you know. Um, that kind of that kind of subject matter has has been left to sort of you know popular novelists and and uh, oh I you know sort of Jacqueline Suzanne's and mm-hmm. the world um, but you know I mean to me at, at least in the last you know hundred years or so I mean you know certainly Henry James and Edith Ward, you know used to write about the sort of the upper strata of New York. Society, and um, and and I think it's um, it's crazy to turn our backs as novelists on, on a on a whole class of people, particularly the class which is more influential than any other. Right. Yeah. You know, um, for better or worse, the this sort of you know the, the sort of privileged, highly educated residents of Manhattan are, you know, more influential, uh, in the, in the lives of everyone than, uh, than almost anyone else. And, uh, you know, they, they have, um, and they have their tribal rituals and their foibles, um, just as any other class does. And, uh, and, and I find them worthy of, <laughs> of examination, you know? um. You know, the last person who you know, one of the last people who really tried was Truman Capote with his yeah. his unfinished and very much unrealized novel answered prayers. And it would have been it would have been great to see if he had actually done this because, you know, he really he really knew that world. I don't know. I'm a I'm a liberal you know, my politics are strictly left wing, but but I I but I but I do feel that there is a there's a kind of a Marxist bias in terms of of, of, of academic and literary criticism, mm-hmm.
3: whereby the you know the, the, the travails of a of a coal miner are somehow more
1: worthy of attention than the travails of a corporate lawyer, and um, you know, I, I, I I think that uh, novelists should be looking at at at, at, at um, all the social strata. Every novelist should find his own tribe to study. You know, I find Manhattan's elite to be a pretty to be a pretty interesting group to examine.
2: Yeah, and and it's not been covered as much, so it's it's good. But yeah, I, I don't know the reason for that, but I think also it's because a lot of writers don't come from money. I mean, that they they don't understand it, so they can't tackle it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, just to be clear, I was I was. Yeah, my dad was, uh, well, my dad was, uh, he was a sort of, uh, I don't know, a mid to upper level executive, I guess, by by the end of his career. And uh, we had a very comfortable life. We lived in succession of, of middle class suburbs around the world, really, you know, Chappaqua, New York, and, and Oxford, Uckshot, mm-hmm. England, and West Vancouver, Canada, and, you know, they were all... They're all quite similar in some ways, you know. We always, you know, we always had a sort of a four-bedroom house on a, an acre of land, and <laughs> wherever we were, and mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, we were pretty comfortable. My dad bought a new car every few years, and uh, and I was able to go to the private college of my choice. The case turned out to be Williams, but you know, when I went to Williams, I encountered a you know, I encountered a group of people that I that I hadn't really before, which is to say you know the sort of um, the American plutocracy <laughs> uh, and I, I mean they were um, you know I suddenly realized that I was you know very much a middle class kid and I think it's a good perspective honestly because I think I, I think coming from coming from the middle allows you to <laughs> to kind of look look.
2: Yeah. No, the outsider status is is very good. Um, well, or the the middle status maybe, because that's what you are saying. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, because you know, talking to writers, often you find there was uh, kind of early uh, emotional need. I don't know. That's it seems like. You know, why become a writer? Are you just in love with language, or there's just something? What 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 was it for you that? Well, in terms of my upbringing, I should say I I did I. I did move a great deal, like yeah. almost every year, and uh, me too. it was very unsettling,
1: <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, and it did make me pretty insecure as a kid, and uh, and I think reading became a real retreat for me, and a real, you know, a, a, a way to live vicariously um, when I didn't always have any friends, and um, and you know, reading eventually did. I spent a great deal of time alone because I was, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was always the new kid and then always, uh, always, um well-adjusted people become novelists.
2: Yeah. they think it's but, fair but, to say that.
1: There's just too many other... Th- you know, there's too many other things that <laughs> that one would think about doing if, if one were a really happy, well-adjusted, socially popular kid.
2: Yeah. But that's what I mean. And then why... Because then you wonder, once you are, you're obviously socially well adjusted, and you're gregarious, and you move in all these circles, and you live an exciting life, and you write. um, And then, what keeps you? What keeps that hunger? That's
1: a good question. Um, I mean, I think yeah. I, I, I mean, I do think initially, you know, I, I wanted my writing to somehow get me accepted and get me, get me some sort of recognition. um,
3: you know, I guess the answer is I, I never did it. I never did it for money. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, if, if if that were my primary motivation, I wouldn't um, have. You know, I would have gone into some other business because I always assumed that it, that I never would make any money from my writing, and and even even having. You know, succeeded to some extent.
3: Are still there. I love the challenge of trying to sort of reinvent
1: the literary tradition, and, and I love the, I love playing with language every day. Most of the same things that drew me to writing are are, are, are still here. That you
3: know that pa- those that love and passion. Now I've lost the insecurity and the, the desperate sense
1: of hunger, but I still, but I still have the the passion for solving literary problems and for getting into the playground of the language every
2: day, and um, yeah, the English language is is great for doing all those things. I was talking to some other writers about it that you know the uh, writers who adopt the English language because of its um, its great flexibility. Um, but you lived in other countries. too. did you ever? Um, you don't write in other languages, no, or no, no. I wish I
1: were. are <laughs> fluent enough in any language to write to write in it. Uh, I mean. I love French, but my mm-hmm. French is, is fairly poor. I lived in Japan for for two That's years, but it was never um, there was never any question of of writing in Japanese. And that, I mean, that would have been a, that would have been a you know very long project indeed. And and the Japanese language you know is so unrelated to English that you know unlike French it,
3: you know mm-hmm. it's,
1: studying Japanese didn't feed back into my own understanding of after two years, I abandoned that. But um,
2: do you want um, to talk a bit about Ransom?
1: Um, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think Ransom, in some ways, and Ransom, in some ways, was like a first novel, even though it was published second. Because I think, in some ways, it's a typical kind of first novel, a sort of bildungsroman, and um, and and it was. Um, It was was very influenced by this sort of expatriate fiction of all kinds of writers at that time. Uh, Graham Greene and Robert Mm -hmm. Stone and Paul Theroux, maybe, who was very popular then. Um, And I was trying to write a classic expatriate novel, and basically I wrote one or two drafts of that novel and put it aside because I didn't know whether I had succeeded at anything. And And then in a very short space of time, I wrote Bright Lights, Big City, in between drafts of Ransom. Yeah. Bright Lights, Big City was ha- like having an affair,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, on, um, and che- cheating on this book uh, mm. called
3: Ransom, <laughs> which I've been struggling with for ages. Ultimately, Bright Lights is a more original, yeah. original book. And,
1: uh, and, as I said, I published it first, but then I went back to Ransom once again. and and. You know, I, I I think it's a very you know I, th- I think it's a good book in in certain ways, but I but I also think it, it, it's you know it's kind of anomalous in terms mm-hmm. of my output in terms of my other books.
0: My name is Annie Richard, and I'm an associate podcast producer for The Creative Process. I'm a third-year student at Tulane University studying English and film. Although hailing many accomplishments, Jay McInerney approaches his creative process as a lifelong student of literature and language. Crediting his ascent into writing to the excitement he felt at age 15 admiring the poetry of Dylan Thomas, McInerney speaks with reverence about his teachers who range from a ninth-grade English teacher to Raymond Carver. With experience also as a journalist, McInerney's work is an emblem of how English can marry the sharpness of investigation with the roundness of poetry. Achieving fame with his first novel at age 29, I am speaking for many unsure English majors when I say that McInerney is an icon of almost unattainable success. Through writing novels, short stories, screenplays, and even as a wine expert, he has gained status as a celebrity, which is not common for a writer. Yet, when listening to him in conversation with Mia, McInerney, although disciplined, has not lost an almost childlike wonder of the English language and the world around him. McInerney expresses gratitude to the, quote, rhythm and the power of these voices he had gotten a hold of. Of his childhood, he speaks fondly, but is always the new kid, often alone, as his family moved around a lot. He also discusses his young adulthood in college and in New York City as someone suddenly conscious of his middle class and looking from the outside in, trying to gain acceptance by observing the unfamiliar world around him through writing. With this perspective, a sensitivity, and also a hint of investigative journalism, he is able to capture and bring humanity to some of the most elite subcultures of America through painting careful and detailed portraits of individual characters. McInerney is an example of how crucial passion and curiosity are not only to writing, but to whatever you do. I actually started college out as a biology major, thinking that my observational skills were a signal of my potential as a scientist. At the end of a very difficult first semester, I went to go see a movie alone and realized my interpretations of the outside world had always been geared towards art, not science. Listening to McInerney, I am reminded of my own creative process, which values truth and method, but also tries to stand in humility in the face of language. I am inspired to keep creating as someone who is not all-knowing, but slowly, maybe, figuring something out.
2: If you're just joining us, we're speaking to writer Jay McInerney. I'm interested yeah. in these things, uh, the metaphors you're using about the the flings, the affairs. So Bright Lights, Big City was an affair. Um, I guess your short story <laughs> well, collection? Just, I've been working on this
1: expatriate novel set in Japan for, I don't know, two, three years and, mm-hmm. and sort of struggling with it, you know, struggling and struggling and struggling. And then when I just I sat down to... Uh, I wrote this short story um,
3: Yeah. called uh, at 6 a.m. Do You Know Where You Are? Yeah. Which was basically the first chapter of Bright City. And the Paris
1: Review immediately published it, and people were very excited by it. And, uh, and I suddenly realized that, unlike what I was working on, it was sort of fresh and original and not derivative. And I sat down, after finishing my classwork in um, Syracuse uh, 1 May, I just sat down to see if I could extend it into something longer and in six weeks I had a novel.
2: And that happened also with, um, with your, your novel, your um, Brightness Falls? Was that a short uh, story? Well, Brightness Falls was, um, right,
1: uh, Rosalind Cree Calloway originally appeared in a, in a short story I wrote. Um, the first thing I wrote after Bright Lights Big City was a mm-hmm. short story called Smoke, which was eventually published in the Atlantic monthly and uh, um um the characters kind of stuck with me <laughs> and and eventually I decided that it would be fun to write about them I th- I think after story you know after a story of my life I had written you know this story about this, you know this sort of worldly decadent you know drug snorting promiscuous 21 year old girl so I think You know, coming off of that, I decided, hey, let's write about a married couple. (laughs) I think each book is to some extent a reaction against the last one. You've spent two and a half years, as I just have, writing, you know, about uh, a a married couple, uh, writing a long and complex uh, third person novel about this married couple. You know, my inclination now is to write something short, fast, and dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Probably from a single point of view. And that was the Mm -hmm. case with uh, going from uh, Story of My Life to
0: Rightness Falls. And then after Rightness Falls, I wrote a sort of,
1: you know, another sort of short, fast, voice-driven thing called Model Behavior. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I think that must not be that uncommon that you, you know, you were to some extent reacting against what you did the previous time out
2: Uh, I just, uh, I'm thinking of that, yeah, you're reacting to a a big, uh, a huge novel, and when you were talking about that in Japan, I'm thinking of Kawabata, you know, he was such a compressor, and I was wondering, you know how he he wrote such short novels, but then he would compress them again into the palm of hand stories, so so they're practically nothing, and uh, I don't know, that could be an interesting exercise to take some of these uh, longer novels, and then, have you ever done that, the reverse?
1: Um, wow, uh, no, I, I haven't, but <laughs> you're right, it would be interesting.
2: I guess it's sort of what you do with films, though, isn't it?
1: It's true, yeah, it's true, and, you know, it's tough to compress a film, a novel into a film, uh, it, 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 you have to leave so much out, you know, sometimes, you know, I think, like, a novella is the ideal starting point for a, for a film, usually, yeah. Because the average novel is not easily encompassed in film. Um, and, and it's not just in terms of the volume of subject matter. The um, thing that's always tough about adapting films into, uh, novels into films, is, you know, the thing that usually gets left out is the author's voice. Yeah. And as a screenwriter, it's, almost, it's very hard to know how to replicate that. I mean, I and mean, directors, have, you know, can find a visual style uh,
2: that's like. Let's say the second-person voice of Brunswick City. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you think of Mike Nichols when he did *The Graduate*. I mean, he had this wonderful, sort of wonderful, crazy visual style. That uh, film is a director's medium, which is why I just I don't really enjoy writing screenplays, although I've written quite a few. Mm-hmm. You know, the the writer is not the primary creator. He's just sort of a I always say it's you know directing film or, or writing writing for film is like catering the party of throwing it yourself, you know, are
1: yeah, back, like back there in the kitchen and you don't even get to invite the guests. The director is the
2: host of the party. That's weird. And um, yeah, it's the it's the blueprint. And any good director is going to tell you that's the, one of the most important things. You know, it's for the American Writers Museum and the traveling exhibition, The Creative Process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You, you uh, gave a lot of interesting insights, I think, for students. If you want to talk about, were there any other of your books that you wanted to talk about specifically? Yeah,
3: I uh, talked a little bit about model behavior,
1: but um,
2: yeah,
3: like yeah, to... it's
1: probably. I mean, it's funny. It's sort of, you know, I, I guess I think of it as a novella, probably. You know, and uh, so it's a it's just a sort of slightly different category, which is why I published it with um,
2: short stories. Uh, with, uh, with a number of short stories as well, um, but you know, I,
1: I I sort of think of it as being kind of related. to... a kind of a you know a, a voice a voice driven narrative
2: how when you're talking about books, you're you're talking about as of their their family members. <laughs>
3: yeah. uh.
2: you're growing into your voice then i suppose but yeah uh, i think yeah you know, i think that's probably a good way to put it um but it's interesting you know see so yeah, some people would like something more formal uh, um so now um but i enjoy your short stories and they're, they're you're freer obviously to do that are you um, are you tempted to do another collection or definitely
3: definitely i love short stories, and
1: uh i've been saving up some ideas for, you know, I have a little file, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which, um, with with little anecdotes, which I plan to expand into short stories. And uh, I don't know if it'll be the next book, but I'll definitely, um, I'll definitely publish uh, some more short stories soon. You know, I really, I really, I really love short stories, and um, I, I still think it's surprising that stories um don't get more attention because they seem so well suited to you know to the era and mm-hmm. to the shorter attention spans of the of the century and to uh and to the internet for mm-hmm. that matter you know um but you know it's it the, the, the short story is still a sort of um You know, sort of lesser uh, cousin to the to the novel, and um, uh, you know, with a few exceptions like you know Raymond Carver, uh, Mm. uh, you know, it it, it seldom do short story writers get the the kind of attention and respect that that novelists do. Mm. uh, I find it strange. It's one of my great loves. Um, Mm -hmm. I love I love reading short stories. I love writing them. I think it's hard, but um, I'm definitely gonna. I'm definitely gonna publish a collection in the Mm. in the near future.
2: Yeah, that's something we all have to solve: how to market short stories. Because I think you know people who love literature really love short stories, but that number is shrinking, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, 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 the. You know, it seems like I. I don't know if the outlets
1: for them are shrinking. You know, in terms of you know maybe. Maybe the internet has has redressed the balance now, uh, but certainly yeah. for a long time there were fewer and fewer places to to publish serious short stories. Um, and uh, but you know I'm am <laughs> determined I'm determined to be one of the practitioners.
2: Yes. No. It's lo- it's it's a lovely place to play with ideas, and as you see, yeah, you... yeah. Um, it, it's true. Yeah, and it's not a you know. And there's it, it also something, uh, you
3: know, having just finished a very long, you know, having just finished a 120,000 word novel, um, mm. well, I just love the idea of like sitting down in the, in the morning and, you know, maybe,
2: maybe committing to like three or four days work instead of mm. two and a half years work. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know,
1: it's kind of like a one night stand in
2: the best mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, it's also, you're at a very interesting moment because I don't get an uh, opportunity usually to interview uh, an author when they've just finished a book. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah yes, yesterday was literally the day <laughs> <laughs> I
1: finished the final editing. Um, or I finished the final editing the night night before I talked to you.
2: So. Yeah. Well, what does that feel like?
1: Oh, it's, uh, God, it's uh, just, uh, I feel like a great weight has <laughs> been lifted up. Um, I mean I mean it was you know it's kind of exhilarating
3: too to, to um, finally do the you know sort of do the, the final polish on the final paragraph
1: for what's pretty much the last time I mean I mean you know there's still the copy editing stage but that's that's kind of more of a bookkeeping than it is writing and uh, it's um I don't know it's very it's very fortunately I
2: felt very exhilarated when mm-hmm. I finished and um yeah. I think I told you yesterday mm-hmm.
1: about a novel that I wrote, uh,
3: 2010, 2011.
2: Yeah. And one of the reasons that I realized that it probably wasn't good enough to publish was that when I when I finished it, I didn't I didn't have that exhilarated feeling that I almost mm-hmm. always do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't sort of you know rush to my desk in the morning for the last few days, and I didn't. Um, I just didn't get that great feeling of, of satisfaction that, that 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 should come with the, mm-hmm.
1: com- the completion of, of a of a worthy project.
2: Do you mind me asking how many? Because I was interested. i in, here. I'm like giving not advice, but throwing out ideas. But I'm interested in the problem solving. And uh, how many pages was that novel? Well,
1: at, at typed pages, mm-hmm. it's
2: uh, five hundred and.
1: 48 at this moment.
2: Wow, okay. (laughs) i
1: probably, uh, you know, curiously enough, it it seems to me like it's about the same length as as the two uh, earlier installments of of what's now a trilogy,
2: Um, Mm -hmm. uh, which means I think it's going to be a 400-something page book. I mean, definitely on the longer side, but, you know, when Mm -hmm. you consider some of the of the tomes that <laughs> it's a lot shorter than the Goldfinch where
1: or yeah. freedom <laughs>
2: yeah no that's not, that's not for for covering a span of life a lot shorter, yeah but it's, it's shorter at least mm. um but you know it's still a pretty long still a pretty long book
1: you know this is one of the you know i i think sometimes there there are two types of novels that there, there's, there's a type of novel where you know what you have to leave out have to sort of forget a lot of what you know yeah. in order to really make it shapely and and um and fast-paced and then there's yeah you know what henry james called the loose baggy monster they're, mm. they're the kind of novel where you try to put in everything that you know mm. and i guess the novel i just completed is more the latter mm. um, you know, I hope it's not loose and baggy, but it's definitely an inclusive.
2: No, it's very nice to spend a long time in someone else's um, consciousness and intelligence. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I mean, well, I guess the nice thing about the last last two years or so is I woke up every morning knowing what my job was,
3: you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what happens when you finish a novel is that you, you kind of have to reinvent your job again, um, mm-hmm. because it's not, you know, it's not like being a doctor where... Uh, you're exercising the same skills, more or less, in the same way. You know, I think as a novelist, you just you, to some extent, you're starting from scratch. Uh, mm. You know, so as of you know, as of
1: like yesterday, I'm really not sure what I'm going to be doing well. <laughs> the rest of my life. Except, I feel certain that I'll start start another novel or a short story sometime okay. in the next couple of weeks.
2: Okay. It's nice. It's nice just to have that. It, it's the yeah, freedom's and nice, I too. Mean
1: it, it is a nice feeling. Yeah. kind of like being at the start of a, a hike that mm-hmm. you've never taken before.
2: You were, you're talking a little bit about Raymond Carver and your teachers. Um, were you ever tempted to teach? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I've done a little bit of teaching. And, and at the same time, I have to admit that my my teachers, you know,
3: Carver Carver in particular... They kind of treated teaching as something that that, that was um, a bit of a a burden and a
1: distraction from their career as writers. And I was fortunate to study with Ray before he became successful enough to quit teaching, which which mm-hmm. he did a couple of years after I started studying with him. He retired, and mm-hmm. um, I always assumed that I would be that I, that I would teach because that's what most writers do to make a living. And um, so, about the success of of Bright Lights. Um, because it was so successful, I was able to move back to New York, which I, which has been my my goal ever since. I kind of crawled away with my tail between my legs um, uh, after getting fired from the New Yorker. And it turned out that between journalism and screenwriting and and and, and just the success of uh, of my of Bright Lights and subsequent novels, I just uh, I just never really got around to teaching.
3: I, guess. <laughs> I, I have done a little bit. I've, I've taught for several summers at the New York State Writers Institute right. in, uh, up in Saratoga, which was mm-hmm.
1: founded by William Kennedy, which was great fun, and I'm still in touch with some of my students. I, I, I guess at this point I kind of regret that I haven't taught more.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, its I'd, I'd consider it. And at the same time, I'm also proud of the fact that I managed to support myself without teaching. You know? I think it's not necessarily a good thing that most American
1: writers are teachers. It, just in that, I think it slightly constricts the vantage point in the subject matter of collectively of American fiction a little bit. I think it's good that some people, some of us are outside the academy, I guess, because there is a sort of ivory tower worldview that may not be entirely conducive to covering the whole range
2: of the American experience. And then there is that risk, and then trying to to Tobias about that too, there's a risk when you teach too much uh, that you just become too conscious of your process. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
1: that may be. I mean, I I, I don't, as I I don't don't have that problem. But mm-hmm. but part of me is really kind of nostalgic for. I mean, I'd, I'd sort of love to at least um, teach a semester or
3: two, and maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, when yeah. this book comes out, maybe people yeah. will remember my existence,
1: and I'll get a, <laughs> I'll get a few teaching offers again. And who knows? I'm sitting here right now, looking out at NYU, which oh. is right up, pretty much outside my apartment. I'm definitely looking forward to taking a little bit of time off, from,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but I, but it, I just I, I I couldn't imagine. Yeah. You know, deciding not to write fiction for me it would be a very strange kind of emasculation. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
2: Even when you're writing your journalism, I mean it's fi- it's not fiction, but you're you're bringing stories into you when you write about wine. Um,
3: yeah, I just I don't know. I just
1: write um, writing is. You know, I mean, I was about to say I like breathing, but um, mm. but I can't imagine just stopping. Uh, mm. I'd i just think I would have a real identity crisis. <laughs> I would have a real identity crisis. Mm. But but as I say, I mean, te- teaching I think is a is a wonderful wor- and worthwhile activity. And I was lucky to have people like Tobias Wolf and Raymond Carver as my teachers, and. and <laughs> You know, that might be something I want to explore in the in the mm. near future.
3: Yeah, that because would be...
1: I, You know, it does obviously get you thinking about craft mm-hmm. and process in ways that you know could uh, would undoubtedly be helpful. Mm. I mean, as you say, too much of it might be <laughs> too mm. much. <laughs>
2: um, and I'm I'm trying to think of an image. It's difficult. I'm trying to think of how I will paint you. Sometimes uh, writers have told me um, a dream or it's it's hard to condense all your books into one image but i'm thinking of a new york image
1: when i think of my books Mm -hmm. um together i just i kind of think of of, you know a figure silhouetted against the new york skyline that's probably the most emblematic image i can come up with but then again i'm not a visual artist
2: Yeah, no, I think i like to, if I may, because I just like to talk about the idea sometimes. Um, yeah, I was thinking of something about New York, but maybe with movement because of the velocity of your writing. Did you want to talk a little bit about your journalism?
1: I, I, I really um, enjoyed taking time off to write journalism over the years. I mean, in recent years, I somehow strangely became a wine specialist, but mm. um, but I've also had a, um, uh, particularly in the 90s, I, I, I did an awful lot of journalism uh, for the New Yorker. And for a New York Magazine, um, uh, long-form uh, journalism often often profiles. I find it a great way of getting, you know, outside of my own head and um, and engaging with the world. Um, one of the problems for for full-time novelists is understanding how the world works and, and having access to, to to new material, keeping up with the zeitgeist. And um, I think you know journalism. Uh, is very very useful in that regard and you know it's just nice to use a different set of muscles and to get out of the to get out of the study mm-hmm. to get out into the into the fresh air i've really liked being a part-time journalist over the over the years and i've always you know i've always wanted, I've sort of been on the lookout for a sort of for a book length
3: mm-hmm.
1: nonfiction subject but i just haven't quite I haven't quite found my in cold blood story uh, yet, but.
2: Oh, a crime? Not necessarily a crime?
1: (laughs) It could happen at any moment.
2: (laughs) Well, there's lots of crimes, but not necessarily. Um,
1: Yeah, but it has to be the right
2: one. Uh, So here's the questions from the American Writers Museum What are your views on the future of literature with all the current conflicts and our future on the planet?
3: I think literature is more
1: important than ever. in terms of interpreting the world around us and, and and making sense of conflict and creating unifying narratives. When I was writing Bright Lights, Big City, or when I was you know graduate school, trying to become a, a writer of literary fiction, I, I mean a lot of people said that you know Tom Wolfe was going around saying the novel was dead and 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 fiction did seem to be in a real slump back in the. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't that much new fiction being published that was really breaking out into a, into the general consciousness. You know, there wasn't a John Irving or a Donna Tark. And it seems to me that, you know, when I published Bright Lights and a number of other young writers came to the fore uh, around the same time, that, you know, fiction seemed to, certainly we get a wider audience than, than many writers had in the years immediately preceding. Uh, Eighty-four, eighty-five, and but I think the wonderful thing is that since then, there's been like, you know, five or six generations of young mm. writers that have come to the fore, that have found relatively large audiences, and and that have continued their writing careers, you know, mm. I mean, it, it seems to me that, you know, the American novel is, is alive and well, and livelier than, than ever, and you know, despite predictions that... The internet, electronic entertainment, was was going to was going to kill the novel. It doesn't seem to me to have happened, and it seems to me also that literature is more important than ever as uh, the world becomes more interconnected, and, as the need for communication between cultures uh, becomes more crucial.
2: Yeah. Well, I find you, it's hard to know what you. Th- it's hard to know what I think unless I, I write it down, um, and really examine it. So I don't know what the, those who don't write. As you say, it's it's hard to know what goes to their mind when they don't write or don't, don't have an outlet like that. Um, so what are I actually just as an aside, I wanted to say uh, we didn't speak about it so much, but you know your books, in particular your early book, was so um, influential, and I I see the influence even in unlikely places like um, I will say Hilary Mantel. I I didn't mention it to her, but yeah, it's very I I think so. I mean, I don't know if, I don't think maybe not an influence, but I think that, um, yeah, that immediacy, uh, I, I find similarities, but I don't know if you ever thought of that connection.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes that's why
1: it would be harder for me to see an
2: yeah.
3: objective observer,
2: but, yeah. um, but I'm glad you think so. Yeah, anyway, that's aside. side. Okay, so what are your views on the establishment of the American Writers Museum and the importance of the humanities? Uh,
1: I, I can't believe nobody thought of it earlier. An important and a noble idea and long, long overdue.
2: <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. And you, you know it is an Irish guy who, who started it? <laughs> uh, well, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> he went back home. He saw the Dublin Writers Museum and he said, why isn't this over in America? We don't have anything like this. And so... I know. It's, it's, it really is. It's a wonderful idea. So which one or two American books or plays would you yourself recommend to the foreign leaders?
3: That's a
1: because it implies a type of subject matter that American fiction is necessarily rich in. That is to say, you know, we don't have such a strong tradition of political novels and of novels that deal with international relations. So I don't know that I would recommend a different novel to foreign leaders than I would to anybody else. But, I mean, if I could only recommend two novels to any foreign person they'd be like uh, the adventures of, of huckleberry finn and um, the great gatsby
2: those are good choices who in your childhood for example parent or teacher encouraged you to read books and which one or two books do you remember most fondly
1: when i was in ninth grade i had a, a teacher named norman jamie he got me reading poetry in such a way that i was excited and i really began to think about writing and wanted to be a writer um and that was, uh, and, and and what I particularly remember um, uh, from from that class was um, that he he had us read uh, Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales, and that kind of that kind of really set me off. In, in terms of uh, my writing career, and wanting to be a writer and starting to identify as a writer.
2: And um, which books by writers of the other G8 countries? Uh, have been most important to you as a writer?
1: You know, American literature is to some extent a, a, an outgrowth of, of, of English literature. Mm-hmm. And there are so many English writers that are important to me. I hardly know where to start. Um, although, I don't know, Shakespeare, Thackeray, Evelyn Waugh would be a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Balzac has always been a really uh, important writer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think you know the way that he wrote about Paris had a very direct influence on on the way that I um, that I write about New York. I just love Balzac. I love Lost Illusions. I love Cousin Bette. I love all the the novels of the comedy men. I was just thinking the other day that I wanted to dive back into Balzac once I finished my um, once I finished um, this novel. He's probably one of the more important writers for me in russia it's almost impossible to know where to start but you know i mean Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, tregenyev um and chekhov you know are among the um the writers that i read with the greatest pleasure well japan i love you know i mean there's so many great Japanese novels but mm-hmm. probably my favorite japanese novel is, is snow country by Kawabata.
2: okay so Italy.
1: you know moravia one Italian book would I? Would I single out the Leopard? Maybe Germany is the last one. No, Germany and Canada. I love Thomas Mann. Thomas Mann's least characteristic book, which is Death in Venice. <laughs> For Canada, Margaret Atwood, of course. But I also oh. like uh, I Robertson Davies.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
1: Well, I I really like the uh, the Deptford trilogy, which included the Manticore,
2: as I recall. Okay, and um, in, and good luck with your next project, whether whatever it is.
0: This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Annie Richard. Assignment Editor is Sorella Lark. Digital Media Coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Andalus and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.